This is the Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcast. In this episode, I talk to Tessa Martin, who has been doing Iyengar yoga for 25 years and teaching that yoga for 20 years. We talked also about uh, Tibetan Buddhism. She spent eight years um, with a Tibetan Buddhist group and then went on from there to to do the Mondo Zen uh, training with Jumpo Kelly Roshi, uh, where she's been doing that for many years now and done lots of uh, the Mondo Zen retreats. <clears throat> we talked about the importance of having a community of spiritual friends uh, to help you navigate the tricky terrain of long-term practice, the, the ups and downs and plateaus, and to help you keep, keep going. And uh, also, we talked about how yoga benefits meditation um, through helping the body relax so that there's um, less interference from your body in uh, in yoga and also the great benefit of realizing silence and experiencing silence uh, on whether that's on a silent zen retreat or the silence that is at the very heart of our identity i hope you enjoy so tessa martin welcome and uh, thanks very much for joining me today to generously share um <clears throat> your story of um well with transformational practices and a and an integrating approach um weaving lots of strands together yeah sure of, thank uh, you but body heart mind spirit yeah um and uh two things we're gonna particularly focus on today i mean as well as the other things are uh you, you've been teaching yoga for many years mm -hmm. um and i'd love to talk about that how that practice and also how teaching it has changed over the years and evolved mm -hmm. um <clears throat> and also um you've been doing zen meditation well, i mean di di different types of meditation for a long time but i know you've been involved in uh in zen in particular um and i'd love to explore those areas in particular um and we might get into into some other stuff as well but um does that sound good that sounds great yeah okay so just to give a bit of context we've known each other um for uh, you know a li little over 10 years or something like that um i know <laughs> And we've, we've done quite a lot of <laughs> different practices together, workshops and retreats and those sort of things. Um, and it's quite, it's quite a funny thing that, that mo most of our uh, interactions have been within that context. Yeah. We haven't really done the more normal types of interaction. Yeah, it's very true. It's very I, true. I have actually done... Uh, a drumming workshop for you yeah you did it i remember that which was which was totally different but yeah. um so I interestingly our, our relationship has been based mainly around um 
doing transformational work together uh, rather than um, you know sitting down for a casual coffee and uh, you know having a picnic type kind of friendship yeah. uh, yeah. which is which is quite an interesting thing and it and it's 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 a great thing I think to have friends that you particularly bond around um, something like this. Um, oh, absolutely. It's crucial, I think. Yeah. It's very difficult to, to sustain any level of practice without um, communing with people of the same interest, shall we say, we, and support, a support network. Yeah. Yeah. So to put, put that in the Buddhist context, they have the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. So the, the Buddha being that kind of first person realization of um, the amazingness of our own consciousness, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, the Dharma being the teachings. Yeah. Um, and then the Sangha being the community of practitioners. And that's this kind of special triad. That, mm-hmm. is that, that's, that's only two I'm doing, but you know, it's a triangle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're, both very much in favor of that in any context doesn't just doesn't just apply to buddhism no definitely not you could apply it to everything couldn't you <laughs> so if we let's uh, start with you know when, when did you get into any of this stuff meditation yoga you know what was your kind of entry point okay but you know won't go too much into the personal because uh, as we were saying it's difficult but it, it was a bit of a crisis in my life I split up with my children's father um, I was living on my own with my two very young girls for they were four and 18 months at the time um, and I got very <laughs> it sounds strange but I got really fed up with what was on the tv so I was very limited I couldn't go out in the evenings obviously because I had my girls um, and I got absolutely fed up with that. So I started reading a lot more than I'd ever done in my life. And I started reading the kind of popular Buddhist psychology type books, um, first of all. And then... Could, what, le- what, could, you, could you say some of the books that you read? Oh, gosh, that's... I can't remember. I think one of the first ones was um, Soraya Das, Awaken the Buddha Within. Mm, Lama, Lama Surya Das. That's it. Yeah, that stuck in my mind. But there was loads. I mean, I literally used to go to the library, get out a book, look at all the recommendations, just pick ones that kind of sprung to, that I thought might be interesting. And, and it carried on from there, really. And then I, then I got to the stage where I thought, oh, I need to take this a bit more seriously. Now, at the same time, I just kind of started the yoga. So there was an interest in the yoga as well. Um, but I found trying to read the, the kind of written information about yoga, especially within the Iyengar tradition, which is what I'm part of, was very dry, very difficult to relate to um, the early Hindu stuff. So the Buddhist, more popular stuff was far more accessible. Um, so I kind of thought after, I don't know, a couple of years, I think I thought I need to take this a bit further. So I searched around Newbury, Reading, and I found a, a Tibetan Buddhist group in Reading, which I ended up going to for about eight years, actually. 
Um, but I always knew that it wasn't quite right. And it wasn't until I read Ken Wilber's, um, I think, you know, I came across Ken Wilber and I read some of his stuff. I will say the stuff that I could digest, because again, Ken Wilber can be very academic and he leaves you, you know, very difficult. But Integral Life Practice was it was a reasonably easy book. And the first book I read of his was um, the one about his wife, Grace and Grit. Um, and it wasn't until I got a little bit more into that that I realised exactly what was wrong with the Tibetan group. It was a, a typical old traditional style, almost comparable to Catholicism. Um, and what I saw in the Sangha, we're talking about, you know, the Sangha, the community of people that were going along there, was a, a complete lack of joy. Mm. I thought this is not right, you know. And I saw young teachers just telling people that, you know, all their problems were because they weren't practicing enough. They needed to get back on the mat, do more, more, more. Um, and I kind of realised that 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 their their approach was very narrow. And as we we learned from the integral stuff, it's better to broaden broaden out your practices. But yeah. I'm sure we'll get into that a bit more in a minute. Mm. Some of these more traditional forms of, of Buddhism, um, when you when they are sort of transplanted into our contemporary Western culture, um, some of the more stifling aspects of that the traditionalism uh, uh, become really apparent. Uh, you know, a lot of, say, if you take Tibetan Buddhism, for example, a lot of the more traditional forms of that, and also Zen, um, women were not treated the same as men, for example. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and they tend to be very much of that ilk of um, our way is the right way. Yeah. Um, everyone else... Way. Sorry, what's that? I is the right way and the only way. Yeah, the right way and the only way, and everybody else is probably going to hell. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Li literally going to hell. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I met um, my first fundamentalist uh, Christian uh, when I was in my early twenties, and it was absolutely shocking. Um, yeah. I mean, they, they treated me really nicely. I was on a solo backpacking trip around Scotland and uh, they kind of invited me into their house and they were, were very nice people but then when we got talking about they well they were desperate to talk about religion because they wanted to convert me which I'd never experienced before and mm. and I remember saying to them what if somebody um, lived the perfect life like ticked all the boxes in your Christian um, you know, scheme. <laughs> so they, they were like the perfect Christian, but they just had never heard of Christianity or the Bible or Jesus. They just lived in some part of the world where, you know, that yeah. hadn't that hadn't penetrated. Is that person going to hell or are they going to heaven? And they said, totally, no doubt in their mind, that person was going to hell. Mm. Yeah. And and it just. Um, I, I was absolutely astonished and, yeah. and, and we can kind of think that that's 
um, a way of thinking that only that only happens in our stupid modern western world or traditional western world with christianity christianity's bad and all these other eastern religions are really good but there's just as much of that bigoted narrow-mindedness in a lot of the eastern religions uh, yeah. as much as christianity yeah and I, I, you know i do appreciate now i can look back on what was what they were teaching and the teachings themselves are, are amazing of course but it's the way it's presented wasn't right for me in the west definitely not um and also it is that lack of bringing in any of the modern viewpoints like the psychology there was just no none and that, that, of course, leads to a lack of empathy and a lack of compassion, actually, um, which is what one of the things that Buddhism is supposed to be all about. Mm. Well, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I don't want us to, to give uh, a listener um, the, the idea that we think Tibetan Buddhism is a load of crap. No, uh, absolutely not. <clears throat> no, no, we, we're both very much value the teachings uh, of, of all Buddhist schools, um, but the you you it is possible to get the best of the teaching from these traditions, whilst utterly ignoring or or actually pushing back against uh, misogyny, um, mm. uh, racism, yeah, all of those types of things that get that that, that are part of it. Yeah. yeah yeah definitely yes and it just requires a little bit of discrimination from us to weed those things out yeah um yeah so yeah. that to so you 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 just kind of got a bit dissatisfied with this tibetan buddhist group yeah and i've uh, come along come across came all this work um was very fascinated by it um and then i came across an interview that Ken Wilber was doing with Jumpo, Dennis Kelly, who was the first Zen master that I, I'd been to. And he was teaching a retreat in Holland. And I thought, oh, that's not too bad. I can get to Holland. I wasn't so keen to go to America at the time. Um, so I, I went to that and I didn't really look back. But I think even before that was when I met up with yourselves and Gary. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I, yeah, so it probably went in that order. So I had an interest in in the integral approach. And I was searching around for, for things, for groups, to try and expand my knowledge of that and expand my experience. I think that, that uh, raises something important, that learning some kind of theoretical model, whether it's the integral theory um, or something else that's kind of potent like that it can help you make better decisions about the uh, traditions or spiritual practices or lineages you want to get involved with and how to make these kind of discriminations between uh you know that i'm gonna that i'm gonna take that but i'm gonna leave that or yeah and and it's sort of um highlights the importance of having some kind of philosophical framework from which to make decisions of those types. 
Yeah, definitely. Because without that, I'd experienced a, a very narrow approach. I mean, perhaps that was as much my lack of lack of experience and understanding before I fell into the Tibetan group as much as it was what they were doing, if that makes sense. You know, yeah. I, did, I didn't have the kind of knowledge necessary to discern what was going on properly. Um, you, you were co-creating a limitation. Yeah, I think for me as well, which is a thing that, that's carried on throughout my path, is there, there was even back then when I look at it now, there was a gut feeling that it wasn't right. And I, I, I'm, I hadn't listened to that at first. It took a long time to, to really listen to my gut properly and accept that that's a, that's a good barometer as it is, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Because well, you've, you've got to compete with all the other voices and perspectives yeah. that everyone else is saying oh you know this is the one true path or the nothing else matters and it, it's confusing when you're trying to make sense of all that stuff yeah absolutely which is where a robust philosophy comes in to help you yeah. it's it's a mental tool mm. that that can help you work on life in an effective way i think Mm. And as, as Ken Wilber always says, the cognitive line leads. We need the knowledge and we need to understand it to make appropriate decisions. Yeah, you can only act on what you're aware of. Yes. Um, you know, it's just as simple as that. Mm. Um, so you, you've got this extra knowledge through coming across that philosophical model. Um, yeah. <clears throat> which suddenly gave you all of this new stuff you hadn't been aware of before to, yeah, yeah. to work on. Yeah, it was a really, a really mixed feeling as well because it was, it was overwhelming. It was like, oh my God, I, I had no awareness of any of this. How can I possibly learn this? That, you know, life's too busy. I've got my kids. I've got all this going on. It's too much. There was part of me that felt like that. But the other part was really excited at the possibilities um, and, and wanting to explore more. And my curiosity was, was peaked um, and it was a really exciting time. But there was the other side to it, you know, this overwhelm and I can't do this and it's, it's going to take too much time, there's too much to learn, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, that, that's, a, that's a theme that's been echoed by some of the other people I've talked to that there's this moment where you realize how rich life is and, yeah. and how rich your own identity is and all the different parts of yourself that you can um, play with and experiment with and evolve. And, and also the importance and necessity of that as well, that it's, you almost have a moral obligation yeah to do this stuff to con to contribute to society and culture properly mm -hmm. um that it can feel a bit overwhelming but then what seems to happen over time is that people <coughs> excuse me um 
whittled down the, you, you know you've got let's say uh, if i just put it into numbers you you're looking at 20 things and then you you because of you who you are your unique person you know you're a new unique person you will probably whittle that 20 things down to six or something like that um that that cover all of the fundamental bases you need to and then yeah. they become your mainstay practices in in your life yeah. but yeah. it's it's quite a common thing to have that moment of overwhelm yeah but it, to give people hope it doesn't last forever uh, you just need to keep going and you will find the things that really resonate with you yeah absolutely and and when you start looking at yourself and basically looking at your own oh how, how can you put it it's not your own talents it's your own desires really but on a deeper level um what you enjoy doing what what is your your thing you know you you're you but you're still aware of all the other stuff but you know that you know, you can't be an expert at everything. That was one of the things I first thought about the integral stuff. It's, oh my God, it's all these lines of development, as they call them. You're supposed to get everyone up to a, a certain level. Well, of course, that's not true. You know, we're, we're all varied on those different lines of development, but why not develop one or two that, that you're already good at, shall we say? Oh, good is not the right word, but you know what I mean. Yeah, well, have a, have a natural affinity for Yes. Uh, and it, it, someone else said that if you're sitting in a boat and you've got some holes in the boat and you're taking on water, all you need to do is just plug those holes up and then you're not going to sink. So realizing that there are some of these areas which you're never going to be an expert in, but you, you can just do enough work on them so they don't sabotage the whole of the, of the rest of your life. Uh, yeah. And that's that's just the equivalent to just bunging up a couple of holes, um, yeah. so you can get on with the with the other things that that you love. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. yeah that's a good way of putting it, Ralph. Well done. Right, it wasn't <laughs> me that came up with it. <laughs> so, a, 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 another guy I talked to called Layman Pascal. That was uh, he can take credit for that one. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So what, what was different about Mon so uh, Jumpo Kelly Roshi, his his Mondo Zen? Okay. What what was what really attracted you about that? I have to be honest, he's such a he's a real charmer, and I did get completely um, charmed by him. But I mean it was such a raw approach. There was no hiding behind anything. It was just sit down, can I swear? Mm -hmm. <laughs> sit down, shut the fuck up and don't move. And I, you know, I thought it was hilarious. I really thought it was hilarious. I wasn't frightened by it. Well, I'm sure some people were, but it was just, and I mean, aside from that, he told enormous amounts of jokes. I mean, it, that first retreat I went on with him, I have never laughed so much in my life. And I've never cried so much. So that, that's what it was like. And it completely opened me up, is the only way I can put it, really. Um, but it was a, such a different approach to anything that I'd come across before. It was really exper experiential. Um, not, not just 
reciting stuff out of a book, not just learning things off, what they call it, by rote. Um, it was really, you know, getting into you. What, what, what's your experience? What are you feeling now? What, and it was like, ah, but it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, that's a really important distinction to draw between a type of spirituality which is a little bit more of this traditional type where there's a lot of learning stuff by rote and not really coming to your own, having your own experiences about things. You know, you're just sort of, if you can speak the speak, uh, you'll get a thumbs up. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. but but actually having your own spiritual transformative identity shift yeah it uh you can go through you know decades of practice in in a lot of more traditional uh, schools without ever having an enlightenment experience for example um which is sounds crazy but um that that sadly is the case yeah yeah absolutely and um one of the things that i that resonated with me that that jumpo said it it seems like a simple thing but he said you know chanting things in sanskrit or in tibetan or in languages that you don't understand you know what's the point in that? And I'm not saying that, that, that that's wrong for everyone, but I realised how wrong it was for me. Mm. It, it never resonated with me. It never did anything for me, but I did it because we were told that was what you did. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I... Well, I, I really resonate with what you're saying there. I um, studied Tibetan Buddhism um, uh, in a, um, an undergraduate degree at university. And so I was learning, you know, from primary sources and all that kind of stuff. And I was trying to do, for example, tantric visualization practices Mm. based around Tibetan deities with, with all of the, all of their ornaments and ritual objects meant tons to people from Tibet, but they meant nothing to me. I just knew this was powerful and I hadn't encountered it in Christianity and I wanted to learn what it's about. Nowadays, I do tantric vision, what you might call tantric visualization practices, kind of deity yoga stuff. But I don't visualize um, uh, uh, Chinrezig or uh, or, uh, also called Avalokiteshvara, um, you know, those kind of deities because they have no cultural resonance with me. I, I use more of the kind of um, uh, English things that come from, from, from the English rural <clears throat> tradition, you know, more of the, that kind of Celtic, perhaps. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know that the, you, know, you go back far enough, none of these people actually were, were native in your country. But anyway, there's a, there's a, whole, yeah. a, there's a whole aesthetic Sure. In England, for example, where we come from, modern England, well, I draw on imagery from Star Wars, for example. Yeah. No, that was yeah. the mythology I grew up with with Star Wars. So, you know, yeah. Yoda and um, people like that have far more powerful resonance for me. Yeah. 
Um, and I, uh, I, I, do, I do things from fairy tales, and I'm particularly fond of Merlin mm -hmm. and things like that. So you know, we we do what's right for us again. Yeah, comes back to that, doesn't it? No, I do uh, a lot of the visualization practices I do with um, uh, goddesses, but mm. basically they are kind of nature goddesses that come more from the the uh, the, the English law and tradition, um, and and also very much more informed by my psychedelics experiences I've had um, along those lines that mean a lot to me, um, and yeah. I think. Yeah, they, I can hear another side of, of people saying, well, a lot of these mantras and things have got some kind of morphogen, morphogenic feel uh, around them because they've been chanted for so many years with so much intention. They have some kind of magical quality and, and I'm open to that. Yeah. Um, but yeah. and I think it goes back to what you're saying that people can make this decision for themselves. If if that if if you, and I think a lot of it comes down to what we might call the placebo effect in mm. in more modern scientific worldview, that mm. the the main thing is it's got to really resonate with you emotionally, yeah, and physically and yeah. cognitively to work. And whatever that is, that's the thing to do, really. Yeah. yeah. And, and actually, Ralph, it's interesting now I'm thinking about that because at the beginning of all of my yoga classes, we chant an invocation to Patanjali and it is in Sanskrit, but it's, it's quite short. Um, and I've been doing that obviously for probably 15 years, nearly 20 years. Um, and that has, a, has a, an effect on me now. It's, it's really interesting how having done it for so long, it does mean something. It's not, I, I started doing it just out of a, a, a um, respect really for the tradition, a respect for my more senior teachers that, that insisted on doing it. And I, you know, really felt that necessity to respect them and to respect the whole tradition. But it's become more than that over the years of doing it. It ha yeah, I can almost say it has a, an embodied effect on me. I sit down, I do that before we teach, and it changes something in me. Changes my mindset, I suppose is the easiest way to put it. And I think there is also something where by chanting those words and sitting in the meditation posture that connects mm -hmm. you to a lineage going back many thousands yeah. of years that people have been saying those words in the same way for such a long time and yeah. sitting in that posture for such a long time that there's being part of that well lineage means like a line isn't it just this kind of piercing line through history that's connected it all there's something yeah. is something very powerful about that at the same time and, and it's the same in Zen we do very little uh well with my group we do very little um, in the old, it's not, it's not Pali, what is it? Whatever it is anyway, but... Uh, Sanskrit. All, Sanskrit. We always do Gate Gate, the Paragate, the um, Heart Sutra. We always chant that, about four lines, I think it is. Um, 
So it's the same thing that everything else is done in English, but there's just that little bit just to, like you say, connect with the lineage mm. uh, in that way. Well, I, I think also the Heart Sutra is one of those most distilled, pithy yeah. condensations of Buddhist philosophy in the shortest text. Yeah. So, you know, so it's a good one to focus on in that case. Yeah. Absolutely. So as a woman, did you notice that, did it feel more welcoming? Like there was more intelligence around gender and uh, sex yeah. and those kind of things? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, you know, it's still patriarchal, Zen, to a large extent. Uh, even modern Zen, but there is much more of an awareness. They know that that's going on and that they're very aware of that and they're slowly trying to address that. Um, they're being very open about previous, um, where previous Zen masters have taken advantage of Western women in particular. Um, there's that there's a lot more openness about that um so yeah it, it's so much better within the tibetan group the old tibetan group that i was in i'm afraid to say that that was very much brushed under the carpet and not addressed and uh not spoken about yeah so yeah i think listening to some of the stories uh say like if you took zen for example a lot of the, sto the stories, the Coens, um, those little teaching stories about masters and their students, it's all men, really. I mean, yeah. maybe 95% of it, it's some master talking to some male monk yeah. um, or group of monks. And I suppose if you're, if you're, if you're saying, you know, if you were to go to a, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm imagining this is, 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 might happen in this Mondo Zen thing that um, might say, well, look, this is what the stories are. They, this is how they were. It was patriarchal in the past. And um, so just bearing that in mind, you know, we're sort of sorry that this is a story. These are stories all about men. Um, but, uh, you know, we acknowledge that that was a that was just the way it was back in those days, but we do it differently now. Or do you feel that they that it would be important to rewrite some of those stories to just make it about a nun occasionally? Or do you, are you happy to leave them as sort of historical artifacts, but going forwards is the important thing? Yeah, definitely. I don't think you can rewrite stuff like that. I think you have to leave it as it is. Um, one thing I found out, which I, I find quite amusing, Bodhidharma, who came from India, he was the first Zen teacher in China. His his teacher was female. Right. All right. So, you know, um, that amused me no end when I first found out about it. I thought, oh, how has this whole patriarchal thing built up when actually his primary teacher was a female well i i never knew that <laughs> yeah, I yeah also the other thing i know about jumpo roshi <laughs> is he has been a very serious practitioner of yoga 
mm-hmm. for many years. Yeah. Is, it, it, is it Ashtanga yoga he does? Yeah. He did, he did both. He did Iyengar and Ashtanga. Right. So that must have been an important thing for you to, to yeah. realise that he, he wasn't just about sitting on a cushion for 10 hours yeah. a day for yeah. like 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, Jumpo really took on the, the um, integral stuff he, and he insisted when he became head of the monastery in New York that he wanted to bring things like this in. He wanted to bring yoga in, he wanted to bring psychotherapy in. Um, he wanted that integral approach and his, uh, the master that gave him permission to do that <laughs> said to him, yes, that's fine, as long as I don't have to do it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Which is typical. But yes, of course, when when I learned that Jumpo had a relationship with yoga, it it meant a lot to me. Yeah. Perhaps we we, will come to yoga uh, in a bit, but perhaps could you talk about some of the awakening experiences you had as a result of working with the Mondo Zen? Mm. Yeah, that, that's, it's so difficult to explain these things, isn't it? I mean, you know, the, the whole sitting in silence I've never done before. So, you know, you spend a week on retreat doing, you know, doing probably six hours of meditation a day. And I've been used to all the meditations being guided um, or, or, or reading while you're doing the contemplation type of thing. But, you know, this sitting in complete silence was an absolute opening for me. Getting to the depth of silence, the depth of stillness, the depth of peace. I've never been there before. And that, that just changes everything actually it's a, an amazing experience um and you've done the mondo process ralph you realize the, the you know the first thing you're asked to do is listen so closely more closely than you've ever listened before and that that kind of brings you to that depth and then the whole process of then bringing that into your body you know where do you where when you get to that depth of listening, where in your body are you actually feeling it? Um, it was just a completely different approach. And, and there, there were just, especially at the beginning, there were just things sparking off of me, you know, realizations. I was, it, it was like I was going through a movie of my life and uh, things were dropping into place, bang, bang, bang. Um, ah, that, that, that that's why that happened or that's I'm realizing what was going on there in a way that I've never realized before. Um, I've got to say it slows down, but you know, it it was just an amazing experience. Um, And I think I've probably done about 17 or 18 seven day retreats by now. Wow. And I've got to say, you you don't come away from any of those retreats the same as you went in them. There's always some experience or other that happens 
Um, but that can be dangerous actually because you, you, you get into kind of expecting something to happen. And of course, that's the worst thing you can do. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't know how, how deeply you want me to go into that. You want me to try and explain the, the feeling of an enlightenment experience? Or... Yeah, I think so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know this is trying to, to talk about the ineffable, but Zen has a long tradition of people describing the impossible, trying to describe the impossible. Yeah. Yeah, okay, well, um, I think last year I had an experience of, um, <laughs> I going to say coming into the light, but it wasn't like that. It was uh, everything became light. And there was a sparkle and a lightness, a luminosity to my whole surrounding um, in a funny kind of way, but it was almost coming out of me as well as coming into me. Um, but, I, you know, even more kind of important than that, it, I think, are the, the depths the depths of the peacefulness that you get to, where you, you, you are walking around and there is not a problem in your body. Everything's relaxed and loose and free. I think that's a good word. The freedom that you feel at that level um, is amazing. And of course, yeah, you know, you get back into your daily life, but there's a residue of that that never goes away again. Um, and obviously it takes practice, 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 but you can tap into it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's, you, you've raised a couple of important things there. Uh, you know, one is this like that kind of shiny luminosity. Well, if, if I think about some of the, uh, m my history with using psychedelics, um, early on, it was all about that stuff. You know, that's what I was interested in, the, the, the shiny objects, you know, the kind of cra the, the crazy, um, you know, that, uh, all, all of that visuals and um, the big, the fireworks stuff. <laughs> and as, as my kind of practice with those things has matured over time, uh, because I've seen so much of that, um, it's a little bit like, uh, I've also done a lot of, backpacking around the world and I've been to tons of paradise beaches and I kind of like that does not interest me anymore I'm not I mean I've done been to so many you know coral beaches with palm trees and nice warm ocean that um there's something else I'm looking for that's beyond that and um the, <clears throat> um and, and I think what's changed is is a bit more of this going right very far and deep inside of myself mm. um, that it, more of a kind of shift in actual identity has become yeah. more important than than the yeah. the the, the what the nature of yeah i don't know the kind of um uh fireworks experiences i mean i can't yeah. think of a very good word for it I think for me, it's a it's a stabilisation that that happens over time that that can then affect your daily life. I mean, I, I've always said I'm not interested in 
well, I am interested in these experiences, but I'm more interested in how I'm how I am in my everyday life. How can I make this work for me at work? How can I improve my relationships, etc., which I've done. I feel I've done um, over the years. Um, so my life is not perfect, of course, okay, off days, but it's generally more rich. I think you use that word. It, it's richer. It's calmer. But calm gives the wrong impression as well. Um, there's a roller coaster there, but the roller coaster's fun. Hmm. It's a, yeah, that's more important to me, I think. Yeah, yeah, because otherwise, it's it's just enter, it can become entertainment. You know, you go on a retreat or you do whatever spiritual practice, and it's the equivalent of going to the movies or a theme park. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> And that, you know, there, there, there is a role for entertainment in life. Yeah. Although, you know, the Zen retreats are not a picnic. It's hard. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. It's hard work. Um, yeah. No, I was talking more, more about the experiences they precipitate. Yeah. You know, some of, the, some of that candy. Yeah. You know, the spiritual candy, which that, the, the shiny objects that attract us. Yes. Um, and, and quite often... You know, a lot of the more profound <clears throat> transformations happen as a result of pain, you know, going yeah. into your pain, um, mm. confronting the dragon smaug on the uh, on the, the mound of treasure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, yeah. Zen is definitely a path of pain. Yeah. Zen is the path of pain. Temple is path of pleasure. And I was like, shit, I picked the wrong one. <laughs> 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 the end up the same anyway. So. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. other thing I, I wanted to say was um, my my meditation practice has kind of had, well, three main chapters in it. The first probably 10 years was just hard slog, mm. just grafting without much reward. And um, yeah. then... I was reading some pointing out instructions um, and I, I realized uh, for the first time ever that my identity, what I thought, well, my identity was actually more um, formless mm -hmm. awareness uh, yeah. was, was where my actual sense of subjectivity was located. And it was something I'd read about a lot you know, for, for many years. And I've been kind of trying to achieve that as a goal. But the crazy thing is, is it's not a goal because it's the, it's the place from which everything in your life happens. It's the, it's the water that we all swim in as fish. You know, it's, um, it, that part of you can't be made into an object. You can't, you can't even see yourself because, you know, it's, yeah. the, the, the formlessness is a great word for that part of our identity. And yeah. the other characteristic of it is it's extremely at home with this moment as it is. Mm. Like radically, fundamentally um, at home and very much at peace 
no matter yeah. how crazy life is yeah. um and when i when that happened for me and that's never really left me since that time that was in about 2007 when when that happened um that's been part of my life all the time since then uh, to yeah. varying degrees you know i mean yeah. it, it depends what's going on how tired i am and all those sort of things but after that my meditation practice was not about making an effort mm. to realize something it became effortless yeah and really enjoyable yes absolutely and that that uh, leading to that level of effortlessness is where the yoga really helps i found personally um not just the yoga the jigong has been really helpful but it's it's being able to completely relax to completely relax the body prior to to meditation is for me fundamental um it just helps so much in that whole letting go letting go of the effort um very difficult to do if, you, if you're in any way tense so before you do a sitting meditation you you generally tend to do some kind of yoga beforehand is that um no, no, I think I said that wrong, actually. I think over the years, the yoga and the Qigong have, have taught me how to relax the body. So oh. as soon as I sit down, I'll go through a process of very quickly now scanning, releasing everywhere. Um, yeah. So, that the, so that it's like a, a bit of a template so that you notice immediately when anything pops in. And you can just ease it again. Um, very important, I think, for meditation to be able to maintain that that level of relaxation in the body. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the mind is the body. The subconscious mind is the body. So the subconscious mind is gonna is gonna come up with stuff. And if you most of the time we're totally unaware of that. We just carry on, you know, uh, like robots, to be honest. Um, so being aware of those things coming up and being able to address them immediately is, yeah, fundamental, I think. Yeah, so that um, points to the importance of working with your body in conjunction with a meditation practice, because if your body is in a lot of discomfort, bad alignment, um, you know, got problems that, that you could, you could problems you could iron out with a yoga practice, for example, if you're not yeah. doing that, you're sitting in meditation, you've got some problem that you needn't have in your body yeah. and it's throwing up interference into your meditation practice. And basically it's a distraction. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, also beyond that, this um, uh, you know resting as awareness, mm. relaxation that is even beyond physical problems. It's um, you know even if you were very ill, um, 
yeah and in a lot of pain you can actually still that yeah. is part of your identity and experience in the moment but it doesn't the thing is, is it, it one before you have that experience you would hope that it just eliminates all pain from your life it's like some kind of cozy blanket that you can just nestle up in and then life just washes over you um, <laughs> but unfortunately that part of you is so free and so relaxed and so at home with this moment that he doesn't want to change anything including yeah. the pain and discomfort so that's that's a sort of a little bit of a distinction between there's there's yeah. a kind of there's levels of letting go and relaxation yeah. um and that, that that to be able to work on the whole spectrum and gradation of these levels of letting go is important because it's not all about um letting go fundamentally into our formless awareness it, it you know that's part of it but then also it really is out of love and respect for our body and the experiences that our body provide that that kind of letting go and relaxation needs to happen on that level too yeah and i also want to say you know that that's been very important for me but I mean, you look at someone like the Dalai Lama, he's, he's really hunched over and I can't imagine he's done any yoga in his life at all or anything like that. So it's obviously not fundamental to everybody. You know, like they can, they can go through with a different approach, shall we say. Yeah, well, if you look at Donald Trump, he, he is an incredibly energetic person. I mean, it, I, he's old and fat um but he's got the energy of a six-year-old and yeah. I mean, he obviously doesn't like he plays golf i think but that's not going to get you in in that much shape but anyway so yeah it's not a prescription for everybody but most most people are not going to be like donald trump or the, no. the the dalai lama has a personal physician yeah you know so i mean yeah. that helps <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah yeah um so if we <laughs> excuse me if we uh sort of go into your uh your yoga practice a bit perhaps mm -hmm. you could describe how that's changed over time I and mean, how many years you've been doing yoga for a long time i, I believe yeah i think i've probably been doing yoga about 25 years and i've been teaching for 20 um let yeah this is i started off as an aerobics teacher I taught aerobics and weight training and circuit training and all that kind of thing. So when I first came to the yoga, very um, naively and foolishly, I taught yoga like I did an aerobics class. <laughs> you know, it's like, do this, do that. Uh, very regimented um, and uh, not, not very soft at all. It t it's taken me years to soften and realize the subtleties of yoga and really what it's all about. Um, and that, that, that's been such a, an interesting journey. And still, the thing with yoga, just like you know, Zen and that, you never stop learning, you never stop learning. There's so much, so many different tracks you could take with it. Um, it's just fascinating, you know? It, it, we do all, you know the asanas the postures they can be done in, in a lot of different ways and then you've got the pranayama the breathing techniques um which i used to hate I used to think, waste of time didn't include them at all 
Um, whereas now, I probably love the pranayama more than anything else. I still don't teach it that much um, because I think it's a very subtle art that can't be taught to beginners. Um, well, that is, is actually probably dangerous. For, you know, um, if you're going to start working with prana and chi, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, intensively and consciously, you if you don't get proper instruction from from a real expert in those areas you can make yourself um <clears throat> well you can make yourself physically ill you can make yourself emotionally haywire yeah. um and uh yeah i would yeah yeah absolutely that's yeah. good advice so people should not just start mucking around with that stuff um you know you can do kind of base very much entry level stuff but yeah. you know kundalini yoga for example you know you don't want to just chuck in some kundalini yoga and well, you know people need to go and get proper instruction with that because that's yeah working with some pretty powerful parts absolutely. of it absolutely i mean i i do teach a bit of qigong as well but i do that on a very basic level that is just you know moving meditation relaxation again um but so, you know people need that people need that base level stuff over and over and over again um yeah but i do i i mean i love it yoga obviously but i also love the jigong because it's so simple anybody can do it whereas i only yoga i'm sorry i don't agree with it not everybody can do that it's a strong practice once you once you get into it yeah yeah but yeah it, it's been great for me I've, I've had my love-hate relationship with it over the years because again you know um yanga tradition is very traditional and you shouldn't need to do anything else other than yanga yoga that's the that's the party line which of course i rebelled against because i i i i, I do my yoga but but i run i cycle i dance I believe that that's necessary for most body, for my body, for sure. And I'm sure a lot of other people as well. Again, it's, it's almost like the integral approach, isn't it? It's cross training almost with your body. You're going to get far more out of it. I think if you can do that. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's important that, uh, <clears throat> you know, just talk about cycling because yoga is not an endurance sport. No. Um, <clears throat> and some kind of endurance training does a different thing to your body. Absolutely. Um, and also high intensity weight training or strength training mm -hmm. um, does something different than yoga. Yeah. yeah. And they all provide some unique benefit to your body that, mm. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's, someone might, specialize in marathon running and just do a little bit of yoga you know so they yeah. don't their body doesn't seize up and you know uh so not saying you're, you're recommending everyone has to do all of those things and fit them into oh. their <laughs> with work and meditation practice and psych <laughs> psychotherapy and reading like one book a day and uh, <laughs> and being the perfect parent and uh you're the perfect spouse and 
you know. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that, that would be something I'd, I'd like to ask you about is because with long-term practice, so you've been doing yoga for 25 years. There, um, and I, there's, I, I've been meditating for about the same number of years and I've been a musician for 30 years and stuff. So I mean, there's, um, I mean, I've been doing all sorts of other things for, for a long time too, but um, this, the, the, the path, goes up and down and plateaus and it's not just like uh, a line that just keeps going up and up and up and up and up really? the whole time you know may, maybe looking in the if you zoom right out it might be going up and up and up but there's all sorts of like you know wiggles along the way um you know perhaps you could talk a bit about how you've navigated the terrain of practice because it's Mm. You, 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 you you alluded to it earlier that you've that it's been love hate at times yeah absolutely. But, but but you've kept it up because it's quite common for somebody to take up something say yoga mm. when they hit their first wall they Thank think all oh, right uh, it's not working anymore this isn't right for me and they drop it and you could go through your whole life without ever doing a sustained practice and mm. my yeah, I, I struggle to sustain anything, to be honest. It really is an up and down, up and down process. Um, and I, I don't know what's kept me coming back. It's like the meditation. You know, I've, I've given up meditating for months. And then but something draws me back. And it's normally that I, I recognize that my state of mind has deteriorated. And I, I kind of think, oh... Yeah, that's because I'm not meditating. And in the end, I've gone back to it. Now, I'm, I'm a bit more like you, um, Ralph. I really enjoy the meditation. And I think you, you have to get to a certain level of competency of whatever you're doing to then be able to enjoy it. It's like music, isn't it? You learn the, um, the chords and the, what do they call it, ups and down scales and things like that at first. But then when you can produce your own rhythms or whatever, that's when you start to really enjoy it. And it's certainly been the same even with the yoga. You, you know, you have to learn the basics and that takes years. It really does take years. Um, and yeah, as I say, I, sustaining it's been really difficult for me. The only thing I can say about me and yoga is the fact that I started teaching. I had to do it. I had to do it because there were students waiting for me. You know, I had to, to had to show up. Um, that's been a way I, I've got round it. And actually, thinking about it, it was similar with the Zen, wasn't it? I started teaching people, first of all, taking people through the Mondo process. Uh, and later I, I do a, an online service every Friday morning. But, you know, but that makes me show up. Um, so that, in a way, that's been my own personal saving, I, I guess you'd call it. Um, but it, it, it is hard to sustain something all the time and expect. I think it's our expectations, isn't it? We're expecting to get something out of it all the time. And of course, you can go through months where you don't. 
have any amazing experience. You don't have any progress in as you would see it. Um, so you have, I think, what you develop over time is patience, patience and acceptance of yourself, and being able to say, okay, I've, I've messed up, I've done this for three months or whatever, but it's time to get back on the horse. You know, you know, for me as well, there's there's been no choice. It's almost choice. When you see yourself deteriorating and things going backwards, and you know why, it's madness not to uh, not to continue, not to go back to your practices. Mm. I think having faith in what yeah. you're doing, yeah, um, helps. But you know, you can lose faith, yeah, in in it, but then regain it and. Yeah, it's quite it's quite a tricky one. There's a there's a book a that one. really inspired me by a guy called George Leonard called Mastery, mm-hmm. and he was involved in the sort of early integral transformative practice. I think is what he called it, and um, he did Aikido okay. uh, for a long time, and he talked about mastery and that that is its own motivating force it's 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 like being in a relationship you know a long-term relationship with a spouse or or whatever and having faith in what you're doing together and yeah um yeah so i mean suppose you know for using that as a metaphor sometimes you can't just do it all on your own you might need to get someone to help you know you need help i mean that and that's where the the community comes in yeah, absolutely. the, the sangha yeah. in the the buddhist context that when you're struggling with your practice to reach out to people mm-hmm. and say look you know this is happening for me yeah. there's going to be someone in your group who's had the same thing fairly recently and they know how they got out of it so they they can can offer that and of course you've got your a teacher you know in, yeah. in, in whatever it is yeah and um and it's, <clears throat> it's it's a bit oh, easy so sorry go on no sorry you go on <laughs> oh um with the body it's a little bit easier so mm. I've, I've been doing um strength training for about 13 years and when i don't do it for whatever reason I'm ill or I've got too much work or I'm, you know, whatever it is, my body just feels like crap. Yeah. And you know, it's just, it's, it's begging me to to do something again. And as soon as I start doing it, my body feels so much more comfortable. Yeah. And um, so, you know, listening, your body is very direct in that way but say a meditation practice is a little bit more slippery because I mean, as you saying, maybe you will have more problems at work or with interpersonal stuff and, or you, you just feel out of kilter somehow. Yeah. And then yeah. you realize you need to get, get back in on, on the meditation. I mean, I've had a lifelong, I don't want to call it a battle, but I suppose it has been a battle. I've had a lifelong battle with my weight. You know, and I go through phases of eating absolute rubbish 
and then I feel like rubbish, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we all, I'm sure we all do that, you know. Oh, I do. Start yeah, eating yeah. a bit better, you you feel better. It's crazy that we that we go off into the the bad habits, but we do. We're human, and it, it's having a real um, recognition of that humanness as well, and and an acceptance that, that helps. Yeah, a, a recognition and a sense of humour. Um, yeah, absolutely, that helps I, too. I I haven't been feeling very well recently, and um, I, I generally never eat chocolate and biscuits and stuff like that you di- because it doesn't make me feel good. Um, yeah. But I've I've been chucking all sorts of medicines inside me, mm. and one of the medicines I know I need is dopamine hits you know and and a kind of good feeling that comes from eating chocolate you know that it's like so i've been doing that i know that it's not been good for my body and it's going to make my you know it might slightly impede me getting better but at the same time it's just giving me a freaking break you know from it's just like oh just sit down watch some complete trash on tv eat some chocolate you know uh help that part of myself out but you know throw a bone to that particular dog you yeah. Know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah very um, but I, I think the other thing that what you said about weight and and, and eating and stuff is that sh- highlights the importance of psychology and understanding of psychology and shadow yeah. that <clears throat> You know, once you well yeah so that's one thing um that once you understand that one of the motivations for eating might be feeling a sense of emotional emptiness or yeah or whatever you know need a need for comfort of some type that you're not getting somehow in another way but if you were to do some kind of psychotherapy psychotherapy around yeah. uh, some shadow issue where i mean i'm not, you know, I'm not saying this applies to you i'm just kind of like plucking something out of the air that um this probably applies a bit more to me i i'm quite kind of military you know i don't uh-huh. i don't really i don't do comfort you know and <laughs> yeah. so that that might be a sort of shadow issue that that i need to do some psychotherapy around because you know i'm not I might not be providing enough comfort for that part of myself. And that part of myself is like, I want some chocolate. Come on. And it was just start sabotaging my life perhaps along those lines. So, you know, uh, psychotherapy can really help with those kind of things. Um, And the other thing I was thinking was, uh, if I can remember, remember this. Um, No. Oh yes. Yeah. This really helped me was understanding evolutionary psychology that in a, in in the wild you very rarely come across things which are very sweet very salty um and full of fat yeah and so we are we've got kind of neurological hardwiring you know biology but our whole biology is geared up towards if you see something 
with those qualities you basically get as much of it down you as possible because you don't know when the next time you're going to come across a beehive is you know a bee's nest or um or one of those salt licks you know that um, and so you, you walk into a into a petrol station you know you're on a long journey you pull in your petrol station you go to pay for your petrol and then you are just bombarded with <laughs> salt yeah. salt sugar and fat and it's all with yeah. bright shiny colors and yeah. so when i now with that armed with that piece of knowledge so this this is you know the reason why i'm bringing this up is that some kind of academic study of these things can actually help you in your life um where so now when i when i go into one of these petrol stations i know all of these triggers are being pushed inside me yeah. And then yeah. I can choose to act on it. I'm free. Whereas I'm, whereas before I'm kind of like a robot. I just go in, the triggers get pushed. I reach for the things, even though all I went in for was to pay for my, my fuel. Yeah. Um, I mean, on, on that line, I, I have an extremely strong hidden inside inner critic. So I'm constantly beating, my, well, I used to be constantly beating myself up. And then, of course, you get this, this trigger where you're, you know, you're beating yourself up so you feel low, so you eat and drink and do whatever rubbish, and then, and then you, you slowly come out of it, you feel good, so there's a cycle up here, and then something happens and, and the inner critic jumps in again. So I started to realise what a cycle that was. Um, you're not alone with the inner critic i think yeah. like, I, i've done uh, training in voice dialogue and uh the, the the critic is you know most people have a very very strong critic yeah. unless you're a narcissist yeah <clears throat> yeah and i did the voice i did the voice dialogue course for about a year um but it wasn't i feel that there's a there's a there's something missing slightly in that. Although they tell you to befriend your inner critic, to understand why it, why it's there, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, there seems to be a missing piece. Because at the same time as you acknowledge the inner critic, I feel you need to build an inner carer, which is what I was lacking. Um, I needed to build that inner care, self-love, self-compassion, self-acceptance, which. To me, with my upbringing and everything, it sounds like, eh, you know, what a load of soppy nonsense. But I've got to say, it's really working well. I've been yeah. working a lot on really softening and, you know, caring for myself. Um, and I, I truly believe if you don't love yourself, no one else is going to love you. Mm. Yeah. It's just a tough pill to swallow, especially, you know, I mean, I, like you, I, when I was doing all the fitness and that, I was very regimented and uh, strong and independent. And wouldn't hear of having to ask people for what for my needs to be met. Um, and yeah, I'm really working on softening that and realizing that there's nothing wrong with my needs being met, etc. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, yeah. I think uh, um, the voice dialogue teaches you how to inhabit that voice you know the the caring one and actually feel it and let it in um, and it also teaches you that when the critic 
I mean, they, in voice dialogue, they talk about having primary selves. You know, you have a kind of constellation of a few default perspectives that tend to always come into play. And, you know, if you've got a very strong crit, inner critic, uh, you know, that would, would be described as a primary, one of the primary selves, a default mode. Mm. And once you learn that, and what the flavor of that particular voice is when, when the inner critic comes online, it's like, I know you. Yeah. It's a bit like, what's that? <coughs> Excuse me. When you, when you know Rumpelstiltskin's name, he loses his power. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. Once if the critic comes in and, and yeah, so just that, just that simple act of like, I know what's going on. I know you. Yeah. I, and also, going back to meditation, with doing these kind of voice dialogue things, that the meditation is, for me, gave me the space to not take all this stuff quite so personally. You know, when you start working with um, some of these psychological issues, it can be really painful having to admit that you've been a twat to fill up, you know, the decisions that you've made have been very uh, detrimental, shall we say. But that, the meditation and, and knowing that this isn't really the real you um, really helps. It's like, oh, this ego is just conditioned. Let's, let's change the conditioning then. Yeah. It's okay. I, I'm here. I, I am. I'm just being. And it doesn't matter to a certain extent, what's going on. Yeah, you can, you can, you're big enough to just hold it. Exactly, yeah. Just simply. Um, yeah. Yeah, one of, the, one of the things I think voice dialogue is, is not so strong on, which is where the big mind process took it a bit further, I think, is, is more of the, trans, well, it's what you're talking about here, is the transpersonal size of ourself i was alluding i mean i was mentioning the sort of formless awareness yeah. side but there but on the other side of it you've got um complete uh form identity you know identity as the universe as nature um mother nature um and from those kind of grand grander bigger transpersonal sides of your nature you know, you you can really, really hold all of that madness of of yeah. our egos, um, because because you're so big, yeah, uh, at that level, um, and I think the big mind process, you know, brought in speaking in the first person from some of these transpersonal uh, voices, you know, the two big ones related to what we were talking, I'm um, mentioning here, would be big mind and big heart. Mm. big mind being that kind of formless awareness type thing big heart being the identity as mother nature or something yeah um but then i think the big mind process probably wasn't so strong on the psychology side of things you know the where's your voice dialogue is much more focused on that so uh, for me i it's been very beneficial for me to have the voice dialogue and the big mind process and bring those together because otherwise if you just do voice dialogue with your ego you yeah. will never transcend your ego yeah absolutely um and you'll just go round and round and round 
and not that transcending our egos is is more important than having the working with our egos i mean well i said maybe if you had to make a choice I don't know. <laughs> you uh, can't your ego is always going to be there mm. it's not gonna it's not gonna go anywhere is it it's always there otherwise we couldn't function so why not work with it yeah so we've talked um i i'm keeping an eye on the time we've yeah. talked uh a lot about personal practice and a bit about community um but how, how do you see your personal practice contributing to culture and society and even nature you mm. know there's wider context because it's it's not all about you or all about me it's you know we we do this because we know we're part of something bigger yeah what's yeah. that like for you for me that i'm not um i'm not an activist and i often look at, at people like yourself that are doing more kind of out there in the culture as it were as and um I sometimes get a slight guilt that I don't do do anything in that line. But organically, I feel like the way the practice has influenced my decision making, for instance, just vegetarian or eating organically, da 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 da, that supports that happening on a larger scale you know i i i can't help but influence my students in yoga i can't help but influence the people that i come into contact with at work um and i hope that organically that that kind of spreads out um i'm very concerned about the environment and nature definitely and i support where I can, the, the charities that, that do work, etc. Um, but I'm not sure that I influence the larger culture very much. Well, I, I think what you know, what you were describing there about the organic stuff and, and natural living, that that's that's uh, you know uh, affecting the economy. That's mm. you you're plugging into a stream of the economy that is based around sustainability and uh, you know, soil health and, and those kind of things. Yeah. Which yeah. that's, that's voting with your, with your money. Yeah. You know, which uh, we, we live in a, in a very money based society system yeah, yeah. And, and that's really important. I, I, I think I remember, remember Jumpo Roshi saying, um, if you want to see how enlightened somebody really is, open up their fridge and look what's inside. <laughs> that's one of his favourite quotes. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's important. It's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, you 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 work in the NHS. I do. You know, what? How have you brought this your practice into that environment? I think. I've, I've attempted to do a little bit of teaching of Qigong in the, in the, uh, in the surgery itself, um, but that, that didn't really work, I've got to admit. Um, but I think it's the way you deal with people that has the most impact. 
you know, people have said to me, oh, you know, you're so patient, you're so calm in a, in a, in a crisis, as it were. Um, I've been able to become a manager, which I couldn't imagine, you know, 10 years ago. Um, because I think my practices have, have allowed me to have a different mode at work. That's the only way I can, can put it, really. I'm not a leader. I've never been a leader. I've attempted to be a leader, and then I realise it's not really me. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say, really, on that. Yeah, one. well, no, that's... I mean, that just being the way you are just ripples out, you know, into the, into the NHS. Yeah. You know. It's a very stressful environment. There are a lot of very stressed people in the NHS. Yeah. For all sorts of different reasons, you know, resources, patients. <laughs> I mean, poor patients, they're ill. They're never at their best when they come. No. And so, you know, the frontline people get a hell of a lot to deal with. Um, mm. And not getting upset when they're upset helps. You yeah. know, they, they get angry and a bit spiteful with each other and, and with me. And, you know, just appreciating what's going on for them that kind of empathy i suppose has improved a lot mm. and not getting caught up in the political gossip in work environments uh, has been a big plus yeah yeah it's very t toxic politics ah. isn't it yeah. um and uh there's a time and a place perhaps for exploring i mean i think it's really important politics but it's, some people just can't help but make everything political. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. So, <laughs> so talk, talking of work, um, you know, you do have to go to work quite soon. Um, so I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Um, and, I, and I hope it benefits. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I know it's going to benefit people listening to this. Um, uh, where... Is there any, any last thing you wanted to say you think we, we haven't said that's important? I think the most, my biggest learning over all the years has really been to follow my heart, to really try and know what that really means as well. This can sound very shallow, can't it? I'll just follow your heart. But I really don't mean that. I mean, really... Let yourself, if you're interested in a spiritual practice, let yourself be drawn by what you're attracted to in that field. You know, go with your heart, be led by your heart. It took me a long time to learn that, Ralph. I was so precious about what other people thought and what other people were telling me I should and shouldn't do. It took me a long time to stand on my own two feet, as it were, but in a in a in a in an earthy way, in a mother earth type way, really. Mm. Um, and I, I yeah, that that's my my message, I guess. Yeah, no, that's good, good advice. Yeah. Um, and where can people find out more about anything you care about? <laughs> okay. Um, it's pretty impossible unless you live locally to join in my yoga classes. I, although I'm doing them online at the moment, I'm not taking anyone 
but I don't know because I don't think that's the right approach in the yoga to teach beginners online definitely not so the, the only thing you could join in with if you wanted to was I do a monthly class I call it the art of relaxation and it's basically qigong and then some lying down relaxation it's very simple um, that's that happens about one Friday evening a month five till six thirty I think I do so if anyone wanted to email me if they wanted to to get the zoom link for that they're welcome um, maybe uh i'm just right i don't know whether putting your email address out there is the way to go perhaps i don't know is it is there a website or uh not a website for that qigong thing no so some okay i think how about this someone might be able to find you by by typing in tessa martin newbury yoga yeah yeah okay. there we go that yeah. then someone would find some way of contacting you yeah sure yeah yeah cool okay but i'm not really doing um work out there in the world like you are yeah oh. but thank god you are because then you find people like me don't you yeah well i i'm only doing it because i can yeah um, so there you go yeah uh well thank you so much uh it's been a, been a brilliant conversation. You've been very um, open and... Uh, oh, I know one thing you didn't ask me. Yeah. What, what, do I need to, what do I feel I need to work on? What area of practice do you feel you need to develop more? And I, yeah. the only thing I can say to that is, you know, I'm not as articulate as I'd like to be. Uh, but, of course, that comes from practice of talking. So this yeah. is an ideal, ideal platform for me to, to practice that. And that is something I feel I need to develop a bit more. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's good. It, and I suppose if you don't talk about these kind of things a lot, you know, a lot of, a lot of us, we don't. You know, we spend time with our family, then time doing work. And we don't have these kind of conversations very often. Absolutely. And it can feel a little bit like, whoa, wind up the gears, you know. Yeah. And I can't, I can't find the words to express mm. what I really mean. But know. it's all, it's all practice. That's a practice in itself, isn't it? I mean, one of my Zen guys, Doshin, told me many years ago that I needed to do um, kind of a master of ceremonies thing. What do they call it? Public speaking? Yeah. Yeah, I never did. Um, but I think he's right. I think that would have been a, a good thing to do. Mm. Because it's different. I mean, I stand up in front of the yoga class and I, I teach the yoga, but actually kind of talking about my own stuff and meditation and things like that doesn't come easy. No. no. <laughs> but thank you for this opportunity. Yeah. Pleasure. And look forward to um, seeing you or speaking to you soon. Cool. Have, have a good day at work. I will do. <laughs> Lots too. of love, Tessa. Thank you.